The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, we're, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll get to Romans chapter 11 and uh, continue on with our series there, but uh, before we, we do so, I, I wanted to uh, revisit our theme for the year, Transforming Faith. And uh, we're going to look at uh, a wonderful passage, an encouraging, vivid passage about the Christian life in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let's go ahead and uh, read this passage. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How many of you ever struggle to stay motivated in the Christian life? I'm going to assume that if your hand's not up, then it's probably dislocated or something, because because we all struggle to stay motivated at times to live the Christian life. How many of you have days where you have no drive to love people and minister? Well, again, like, you know, stick me on a deserted island. I hate them all, you know. That's how we feel sometimes. Sometimes life is hard. I've never thought that about you. Some, <laughs> sometimes life is hard. Ministry is disappointing. And people fail us. And, and so we have no drive to pursue holiness. To engage in ministry or even be around people. We get in a rut, and a rut is a miserable place to be. So what do you do when you get in a rut? Well, our text is a great place to go because, because, the, because the Hebrews were there themselves. And so the story of the book of Hebrews is that, that when these people first got saved, they were on fire for Jesus. The, Bible, the book of Hebrews tells us that some of them, they, they were standing for Christ to the extent that the, that the government was seizing their property. But they didn't back down. And as well, the government was actually putting some of their friends in prison for their faith. But these people were not intimidated. No, instead, they went and visited their friends in prison. They fed them. They encouraged them. They were fearless for Christ. And, and so it was exciting, even if it was hard. But now, they were in a rut. And it was so bad that some of them were considering giving up on Jesus altogether. And the author responds in the early chapters of Hebrews with a number of powerful theological arguments as to why Jesus is better than any alternative that we could chase. But his pastoral steam builds as he nears the end of the book. And the final chapters of Hebrews give a number of powerful pastoral challenges. But none of them Top, the wisdom, the imagery, and the force of our passage today. 
And the author urges us in our passage to stay motivated to run your race by following Jesus' example of enduring faith. So stay motivated to run your race by following Jesus' example of enduring faith. And so I want to challenge you today to cultivate an enduring faith that's going to sustain you and that will as well bring great joy in the Christian life through every peak and every valley that God has in store for you. So let's begin today with the central command of the passage in verse 1. The command is to run the race. Now, if you look at this passage in verses 1 and 2, there's a number of actions going on in the passage. But, but the Greek grammar clearly centers everything in verses 1 and 2 around the command at the end of verse 1 to run with endurance the race that is set before you. And I'd like to uh, develop our discussion of that uh, around five observations regarding this command. And so the first observation is that God designed your race. God designed your race. Now, now the text implies that when it says that God, it really implies that God has set before you your race. That's really important to remember because we don't always like the race course that God has put in front of us. The hills are way too long or the hills are way too steep. The turns are way too sharp. And the race itself is just way too long. So, so we think, I wish I was running a different race than the one I'm on. If only I wasn't stuck in this really difficult marriage. If only I had a better job and more money in the bank. If only I had better friends. If only I wasn't dealing with chronic pain. Well, remember that your race course is not an accident. Your heavenly Father designed every twist and turn in your race. Every hill and every valley. And He did so with perfect knowledge of your needs and your capacities and with perfect fatherly love. And so your race course is designed specifically and perfectly for you. And for accomplishing God's best good in your life which is that you would be conformed to the image of His Son and that you would bring glory to Him. This week I heard a really good quote by Johnny Erickson Tata. She says, God allows what He hates to accomplish what He loves. God allows what He hates to accomplish what He loves. There's a lot of hardship, a lot of things that are difficult that God does not love in and of Himself that He brings into our lives to accomplish what He loves, which is the image of His Son in us. And so you, you don't want God to round off a single corner or to lower a single hill. You want Him to give you the best race that He has designed for you. So, so don't be discontent with your race. Don't demand that God design you a different one. And don't force the issue by cutting a corner, or, or, or compromising your biblical convictions. No, remember that God designed your race and embrace it. Second observation I want to make is that the race is a marathon, not a sprint. The race is a marathon, not a sprint. And, 
And I say that because verses 1, 2, and 3 all mention endurance. And that tells us that the Christian life is more like a marathon than it is like the 100-meter dash. The 100-meter dash is not designed to be a test of endurance. Now, if it is a test of endurance, you probably need, well, at least for a world-class athlete, you need to run a little bit more, right? I mean, no, no, the 100-meter dash is 10 thrilling seconds of power. And it's an exciting event. And it always gets a primetime spot in, in the Olympics. Everyone wants to see that, that 10 thrilling seconds of the fastest people on earth. And it's an exciting event. But I doubt that any of you have ever sat down and watched the entire Olympic marathon. If you have, you need some new hobbies. And I can't imagine watching 26 miles. It's a long race. And there's not really a whole much activity. And you know, typically, they'll, they'll kind of flick on the, the last you know, mile or so and you know, as these people are jockeying to get to the end. But, but no one sits and watches the entire marathon because it's not that exciting. You know, so similarly, praise the Lord for thrilling moments in the Christian life. And isn't it great when... When you just have a time where, where the Spirit of God is working in your life and you are experiencing radical growth, radical change, or you get to be involved in seeing someone dramatically converted to Christ, or great things are happening in ministry, and, and it's exciting. And so relish those times, rejoice in those times, enjoy those times. But remember that that's not always the case. And the Christian life is not about bouncing from one thrilling moment to the next, but about joyfully putting one foot in front of the other, day after day, even when your muscles ache and your lungs feel like they're going to explode. And so, remember that this is a marathon. It is not a sprint. The third observation is is that your goal is to finish the race. Your goal is to finish the race. It's interesting here that God doesn't command you to compete against other Christians in this race. He doesn't command you here to win the race. He simply commands you to run the race that God has set before you. So have you ever been jealous of someone else's race? Well, look at that guy over there. God makes it so easy for him. It's so much more exciting than my race. Or or you thought, man, if I was running his race, I could run it way better than he's running it. I'd destroy him if we were really running side by side. Don't go there. No, focus on the race that God has designed for you. And run your race with urgency and passion. Endure when it gets hard. Enjoy the fun parts. But faithfully run your race. Because that's the only one that matters for you. And and as well, I want to urge you to make sure that you run that race to the very end. Now, Some of you have been Christians for decades and you have served the Lord for a long, long time. And you've made a lot of progress in your Christian life. And, And Satan wants you to be satisfied with the progress that you've made to rest on your laurels, to look back on all that you've done to serve Jesus. And Satan wants you to be satisfied, slow down, or even quit. And uh, 
You know, and, and he wants you to begin saying things like, I've put in my time. I've done my duty. I'm done. I don't need to do any more. And he wants you to stop running and start walking. Now, now I recognize that, you know, particularly for those of you who are older, you, know, you may not have the same capacities that you once did. You might not be able to do the things that you once were able to do. And that's fine. And every section of the race is not the same. But you must run with endurance the race that is in front of you. Wherever you are in that journey. And so whatever God has for you to do today, you should do it with the same urgency and passion that you did when you were 15 years old. So run the race. And then the fourth observation I want to make is that the race demands singular focus. The race demands singular focus. So, so God says here that, that running the race demands that you lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, now we can understand that imagery because, again, if you watch the Olympics, I, I really enjoy watching the Olympics. And, and so if you're watching the track and field events, you know, before the, the race happens, oftentimes they'll show the athletes walking through the tunnel down to the track. And typically they've got some kind of sweatsuit on or uh, some sort of you know, heavier clothing on. And, but they don't wear that when they run the 100-meter dash, right? No, they, they take off that sweatsuit and frankly they strip down to where there's not a whole lot left on their bodies by the time they actually start the race. And of course, in the Greek games, oftentimes they would run naked. They would wear nothing at all. And... Um, of course, God's not telling us to do that, praise God. But I think we get the point. You know, that, that when you run a race, you are competing. You are striving to get, as, to get as far as you can that you don't want any extra weight slowing you down. And you don't want something heavy or, you know, that's going to limit your movement, limit your, your ability to, your, your stretching ability and, and so forth. You want to devote all your energy to the race. And God says that if you are going to run the race that He has set before you to the best of your ability by the grace of God, then you need to eliminate every hindrance in the race. You've got to get rid of the weights. And He says the sin which so easily entangles us. So folks, if you have sin in your life, God says that it is a major drag on the race. In fact, I mean, He says it is a snare. So, so what's a snare? I mean, think of a bear trap, you know, that grabs your leg. And so if you have sin in your life, it is a trap. It is a snare that is going to slow you down. So every sinful pattern in your life is a drag on your ability to run. It corrodes your fellowship with God. It divides your heart and it consumes your energy. And yet, of course, we're so good at telling ourselves that, that it's not so. Now, I've listened to Christians, you know, over the years. They come into my office. You know, God just doesn't seem near to me. Worship's not making any impact. Nothing's happening. And it's all someone else's fault. Or it's all circumstantial. But they refuse to see how their own sinful passions are at the heart, are the heart of the issue. That their sin is the cancer that pollutes everything. And so we're quick to, to, to blame everyone else and, and to talk about everyone else's issues. 
But God says the first place we need to go is to look at our own heart and our own sin. So be honest about your sin and its effects. Just admit that it is a deadly snare. And it is not worth the entanglement. Now don't tell yourself, oh, it's just a small one. No, be honest about the effect it has. You know, listen when a brother or sister in Christ comes to you. You know, if someone, if a brother or sister in Christ comes to you, even imperfectly, and and challenges you about an issue in your life, and if your response is to be defensive, angry, hostile, when when confrontation comes, that ought to scare you to death. No, your heart should be that, that you want brothers and sisters to help you see your blind spots, see where you are falling short, and change. Then confess it. Forsake it. Do not tolerate it. But I think it's also important to note that, that, that the author here does not just say that sin slows us down. He, he mentions every encumbrance or every weight. So, so he's saying here that anything, even something that is very good in and of itself, can slow you down in the race of the Christian life. If it becomes an idol, something that, that is competing with God's priorities in your life. I think just a chilling example of this comes to us in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We won't turn there today, but in 2 Timothy 4, Paul is preparing to die. He is just about to be beheaded for preaching the gospel. He's giving his final instructions to his his disciple Timothy, and, and he says to him in the midst of that, Demas has deserted me, having loved this present world. You know, what's so interesting about Demas is that Demas started well. He was a traveling companion of Paul, and and that was not a rosy job, right? It was a terrible job from from a human standpoint. It was hard. It was difficult. There was hostility. And in fact, when Paul writes the book of Colossians, Demas was with him. I mean, Paul wrote Colossians during his first Roman imprisonment. And Demas stood by Paul during that imprisonment. He was faithful. He was bold. But somewhere in that four to five year period between when Paul wrote Colossians and when he wrote 2 Timothy, some sort of worldly passion began to pollute his heart. And it grew and it grew until now, some four or five years later, that worldly passion is so strong that he abandons Paul in his most desperate hour and walks away because he loved this present world. That's scary. You know, so, so maybe you'd say, well, well, I know I've got this little drag in my life. But it's not that bad. I really love it. And I can control it. Well, you don't know that you can control it. But, but even if you can control it, God says it is a weight that is slowing you down in the most important mission in all the world, which is to become like Jesus and and draw others to Him. And it's probably a lot more of a drag than you're willing to admit. We've all been there. You know, we, we tell ourselves, it's not that big of a deal. I'm doing fine. But God says, lay it aside. You don't waste your energy justifying carrying as much junk as you can. 
You know, it'd be silly to see some guy, you know, he's, he's getting ready to run the 100-meter dash and he's wearing work boots. He says, well, I really like these work boots. And I'm strong. No. And he's going to wear the lightest shoes possible. Do the same. Because nothing in your life is more precious than the race that God has set before you. You are becoming like Jesus. God is preparing you for glory. And He is using you to to bring others along as well. So give all of your energy to that. Don't let anything slow you down. Stay focused. And then the fifth observation is that this race demands endurance. This race demands endurance. So, So again, the center of this passage is the command to run with endurance. Now, endurance is not an exciting word, is it? In fact, it's a very boring word. No one gets exciting about endurance. You know, I, I you know, like to say, you know, I've, I've never heard a guy talk about this girl that he's dating and say, you know, a friend says, man, what do you love about her? Well, she, she endures. <laughs> Not a very romantic thing to say, is it? We don't get excited about endurance or faithfulness. But they're crucial qualities. And so endurance is not an exciting thing. And I do want to be clear that the Christian life is not boring and blah. Verse 2 describes the joy of eternity that compelled Jesus to go forward. And so there is joy in the Christian life. The prize is awesome. And the race itself is full of blessing and grace. Right? I mean, I love being a Christian. I love that we get to run this race side by side. I love the the, the grace that God gives just day after day, time after time. So so the point here is not that the race is miserable. We should enjoy the race. But there are times when it will simply be a grind. The world looks very attractive. Spiritual growth is challenging. Ministry is hard. And you want to just sit down and sip on a Coke. Don't stop. Don't take a detour. Don't cut corners. Run with endurance the race set before you. And by faith, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. So so God says, run with endurance. But but maybe you'd say, well, pastor, that's great, but, but I'm just not strong enough to do that. I'm weak. I'm I'm too emotionally unstable. I've got problems. Or maybe you'd say, well, well, pastor, that's good for all the really committed Christians, but I'm more of a weekend warrior type. You know, I, you know so, so I'll do my Christian thing on Sundays, but I'm just a, I'm a weekend warrior. That's it. Well, well, that's how the Hebrews felt. And God knows. And He offers strong encouragement in verse 2 through Jesus' example of faith. So, so let's look at the example of Jesus in verse 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I'd here like to make four observations about this verse. So first is, is that Jesus' race was excruciating. Jesus' race was excruciating. So our text says that Jesus endured the cross. Now, you probably know that that crucifixion 
was one of the cruelest forms of execution that man has ever devised. There, there are a few uh, just greater examples of, of, of human ingenuity and cruelty being combined into one thing than crucifixion. And that's because people who were crucified, the, the goal was not just to kill them. The goal was to kill them in, in a horrible, shameful way. And so you would hang on that cross, you know, and, and, and so for hours you would be in, in excruciating pain. You'd have to lift yourself up in order to breathe and eventually your body would lose the strength to pull itself up and breathe and ultimately you would suffocate. It was horrible. And that's what our Savior endured on the cross. And so crucifixion was a miserable way to die. Jesus' race was hard. But verse 2 adds that it was also, the crucifixion was also terribly shameful. You know, no Roman citizen could be crucified, no matter what he had done, because the Romans believed that no Roman was actually worthy of being subject to such humiliation as being crucified on a cross. Crucifixion was instead reserved for the worst criminals, the people about whom the Roman government wanted to make a statement. I mean, they were enemies of the state. And so again, consider the irony that the perfect Son of God, the Creator of heaven and earth, was displayed as the worst scum imaginable. He endured incredible shame. So Jesus' race was excruciatingly difficult. And some of you are enduring horrible sections of your race. And it's important to remember that Jesus has been there Himself. And He never asks more of you than He has already endured Himself. He knows what it's like to suffer. And what it's like to suffer alone. And therefore, Hebrews 4 says that He is a compassionate, sympathetic high priest. Jesus said Himself that He is gentle and lowly. And so you can come to Him, you can leave every burden with Him and rest. So so don't grasp at band-aids when you have gangrene. No, go to Jesus. Give Him your sorrows, your burdens, your cares. Don't don't run to substance abuse or worthless distractions to to, to just help you forget about your, your hardship and pain. No, go to Christ. Look to Him for strength. And as well, the primary focus here is that you need to follow His example. So so that brings me to my second observation, which is that Jesus believed the Father's promise. He believed the Father's promise. So so again, verse 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Now now this is where our text intersects with, with our theme this year, transforming faith. So so how do you respond when the race is miserable or it seems pointless or fruitless? Well, the answer is, is that you fix your eyes on Jesus and especially on the example of faith that He established as He endured the cross. So think of Jesus the night before He's crucified there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows what he is about to endure during the next 24 hours. And he prays to the Father, Father, 
please remove this cup from me. And Jesus begged his father to change his race. But then he had faith to see past the next 24 hours, to see the joy set before him. And so he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he, handed him, he allowed himself to be handed over to the Romans. Or, or think of the next morning. You know, Jesus is standing in front of Pilate. You know, creator God standing in front of this little punk that thinks he's something. And Pilate is boasting about how Jesus' life is in his hands. And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. But then he doesn't assert that authority. He stands quietly. Or or think of Jesus on the cross a few hours later. You know, and, and all these people are out there saying, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. You wimp. You're all talk. You're all show. And Jesus could have put them in their place like that. But he didn't. How did he endure? Our text answers, he did so for the joy that was set before him. Now that is an incredible statement. And Jesus' misery and shame were not his greatest focus. I mean, if you were on the cross, you got all these people yelling at you, you're, you're naked, you're, you're in agony. I mean, you'd think that would be all that you're thinking about. But Jesus looked past what was right in front of his eyes and he saw the joy that was set before him. He believed that the Father would raise him from the dead. That he would be exalted to the Father's right hand and that ultimately he would bring many brothers and sisters behind him. And so Jesus did not allow his vision to be consumed with the horrors around him. No, instead, by faith, he fixed his eyes on the prize. And faith made the prize just as real to him as the nails in his hands and everything else going around him. And God here commands you to do the same. When you're in a rut, you're discouraged, you're tempted to quit. Fix your eyes on the example of Jesus. And ultimately, fix your eyes on the character and promises of God. I love how chapter 11, verse 13 describes this regarding the patriarchs. Chapter 11, verse 13 says to the patriarchs, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The patriarchs' faith shaped and transformed their lives more than their physical circumstances. I mean, they, I mean, they saw what they could not see, by faith. Faith made it real. And if you're going to endure and stay faithful to Christ and effective for Christ, you have to do the same. Do not let your circumstances be the loudest voice in your head. No, listen to what God says about Himself. Believe what He has promised. Now that takes discipline. That doesn't happen accidentally. So so you have to control the influences in your life. If you're sitting there, staring at a TV all day long, staring at whatever's on your phone, that's not going to happen. You have to control the influences in your life. You have to set your mind on things above. It's not going to happen accidentally. But by the grace of God, 
And with daily intentional discipline, you can make progress. You can set your heart. You can, you can see the prize and let it be the driving influence of your life. And from there, you can imitate the next part of Jesus' example, which is my third observation is, is that Jesus ran with joyful endurance. Jesus ran with joyful endurance. Now, I must be clear that, that just because Jesus saw this joy does not mean that he's hanging on the cross, you know, just loving life, having a good time. I mean, he felt incredible pain and agony on the cross, and the Gospels are clear about that fact. You know, you can have joy and sorrow at the same time. And the Bible never calls us to, to pretend like our problems aren't real, or, or to think that we can just wish them away and, you know, kind of enter this like fairy world and fairy tale world and everything's good and when actually everything is burning up around us. But even as Jesus agonized under the wrath of God, our text says he had joy because he saw his suffering in light of eternity. And so the text adds, this is an incredible little statement, he despised the shame. What's that mean? Well, well, the idea there is, is that he looked with contempt at the shame. He, he looked down on it. He wasn't overwhelmed by the shame. He was, in a sense, annoyed or irritated by the shame. He saw it as a small thing. And that is really convicting. Because think about how you and I, and I'm including myself in this, how we moan and groan about our suffering and hardship. I mean, we think that we are really suffering for Jesus. You know, when, when someone makes a harsh comment at work. Or we are really suffering for Jesus when, when a politician attacks one of our values. And so often we act like the world is collapsing under our feet. But, but what, what, what we ought to do is follow the example of Jesus. You know, and when, when we feel that hostility, when, when we feel the press of the world, I mean, Jesus, you know, I mean, the example of Jesus would be say, bring it. Bring it. I mean, you can't touch me. I'm going to heaven someday. I'm going to be with Christ. God's grace is more than enough to carry me through. And every attack, every hostility is simply an, an opportunity for the gospel to go forward and for, you to for God to glorify Himself in me. So this shame is nothing. Despise it. Don't be overwhelmed by it. And then run with the same joyful endurance as Jesus. Now again, eyes of faith make all the difference. Despise the shame, not the race. You know, embrace every twist and turn. Because God is forming Christ in you. And, and, giving, and He's giving you awesome opportunities to, to glorify Him among others. So run the race with joyful endurance. Just like Jesus did. And, and you can do that because of the fourth observation, which is that Jesus secured our victory. Jesus secured our victory. And the verse, verse 2 ends by saying that He sat down to the right hand of God. And, and that pictures His victory. And as well, notice that it says earlier in verse 2 that He is the author and the perfecter of our race, of our faith. And that is huge. Because... I imagine there's some of you that have sat there the whole time making excuses. 
you're saying, I could never run like Jesus did. I can't run the race. I'm not strong enough. I'm too weak. I don't have the power to do what? Do what God's called me to do. I have to slow down. I have to compromise my convictions because I'm not strong enough to do it. And in a sense, you're right. You're right. You are not strong enough to run the race that God has set before you. You're far from strong enough. But if you are in Christ, God says you are wrong. I mean, for one, I mean, 1 Corinthians 10 says that God will never give you more than you are able to endure. So there is nothing in your race that demands compromise. Nothing. If God has put it in front of you, He will give you the grace to do it. And if He knows that you can't, He won't put it in front of you. And as well, again, Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. So, so that means essentially that He is the beginning of our faith and He is the completion of our faith. So, so, so He is the beginning of your faith. I mean, when you got saved, you got saved Because God graciously gave you faith. He is the beginning of your faith. He drew you to Himself. And He is also the completion or the maturer of your faith. Because He was victorious, He made it possible for you to do it too. I mean, really, the the imagery here and in other places in Hebrews, you know, is is it think of like, think of trying to walk through a dense jungle. There's no way through. And so Jesus blazed a trail. He won the victory. He cut a path. And because He cut a path, He he is the leader in allowing others to follow in His stead. So, I'm sure that there are really difficult things in your race. They're hard. They're overwhelming. But, But don't ever say you can't. I have to compromise. God will give you the grace to do what you need to do. He will perfect your faith. He will bring you to glory. Christ is enough to sustain you as you draw near to Him. So so run the race, not just looking to Him as the example that you can't possibly match, but understanding that the very goal of His running the race is so that we could all follow behind Him. You can do it. And that brings us to the twofold challenge with which He concludes in verse 3. Verse 3 says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so the first challenge he gives here is to consider Christ. Consider Christ. I think this is so important because Satan loves to isolate Christians in the midst of our pain and sorrow. And he wants you to think that you are the only one who has ever been where you are. He wants you to think that nobody knows the troubles I've seen. He wants you to think that, that, that no one else has ever been where you are. He wants you to cut yourself off from God's people and from God's grace. And once he has you cornered, he wants to destroy you. And so really, I mean, we need to consider Christ, but I, I want to also back up and just note that verse 1 says that we also need to consider the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. And specifically there, the, those cloud of witnesses are, are the, the heroes of faith that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and, and as well many others. 
And the point there of those witnesses is not that like they're in heaven watching us run our race, like the crowd. That they have better things to do in heaven than to watch us. No, no rather the idea in, in the context is that their lives are a testimony of the fact that you can run your race. They endured by the grace of God. Faith sustained them. And because faith sustained them, faith can sustain you too. You can endure. You're not alone. You're not the first person. Plenty of people have been where you are. And God's grace has sustained them, and God's grace will sustain you. Now, I think, you know, to, to build off of what we talked about last week, there's lots of people sitting in this room who probably have been where you are, maybe are there right now. You know, again, Satan wants you to walk into a church service like this and think, all these people, their lives are perfect and easy. They have no idea what I'm going through. And so you just kind of sit there in your bubble, angry at all the happy people in this room. It happens. It happens. We've probably all been there at some point. But the reality is, is that you're surrounded by a wonderful treasure of grace that there are people all over. I mean, we, we think that, right? Have you ever, you ever been like sitting in a circle, you think that, and then you start talking about how hurting, how, you know, you talk about your sorrows, your difficulties, and all of a sudden like everyone's head starts nodding and you're like, because we've all been there. And, and there's probably someone here that, that could, you know, maybe a more mature saint that could offer you some wisdom, encouragement, counsel. So don't let Satan isolate you from the people of God and the testimonies of, of past peoples of God. But especially, we need to consider Christ. And he says here that Christ, and consider Christ who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Now, now maybe there's someone here that, that you need to consider Christ in the sense that you need to be born again today. You have never received Christ as your Savior, and so you need to see that the crucifixion was not just an incredible act of, of courage and heroism, that it was instead Jesus taking the sins of the world on Himself so that we could be born again. And so if you've not received Christ, you know, Jesus is not just a buddy for anyone who goes to Him for help. He, you have to receive Him first. And so if you've not received Christ, then we want to talk with you afterwards about how you can do so. But Christian, continue to consider Christ. Again, even if, even if it were true that you are the only person that's ever been where you are, Jesus is there. You are not alone in your difficulty. He sees, He cares, and He has been there Himself. He endured the cross and despised the shame. And He has cut a path for you to be victorious. So, so consider Him and run to Him. And then the second challenge of verse 3 is to endure by faith. And look at how he ends. He says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you ever grow weary in the Christian life? Just tired? And I certainly do. You know, I'd say, I mean, the last three, four weeks or so have been exhausting. I mean, there's been, there's been some really cool things the last three, four weeks, but, but man, there's just been you know, a steady stream of burdens and 
cares and disappointments. Now, life, life in the church, life in ministry is exhausting. It is exhausting. It's tiring. And, and, and so it's hard. It, it, we get weary at times. But what's really scary is, is not just when we grow weary, but that last statement. Lose heart. Do not lose heart. God says, do not despair in your pain. Do not grow apathetic. And do not compromise your stand. And when you're tempted to do that, remember the challenge of of Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. The psalmist says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So do not despair. Do not lose heart. Do not abandon the race that God has called you to run for something that you think is easier, more exciting, more entertaining. No, believe that God will keep every promise. His grace will be enough for every challenge. He will carry you through. And at the end of it all, see the joy that is set before you. You will not get to heaven someday and say, man, I wish I had cut a corner. I mean, you will be so glad for every faithful step. So see the joy that is set before you. Do not lose heart. Do not stop running. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. There's grace and strength in Him to endure. Heavenly Father, thank You for this wonderful challenge. And Lord... I pray for people in this room who have lost heart. That God, You would just by Your Spirit pick them up. And with the help of of Your people, pick them up. I pray for others who have become weighed down with weights and sins. That Your Spirit would convict them And that they would eradicate those things from their lives. Even at tremendous cost if necessary. And Father, I pray for all of us that with Your strength and help we would run with endurance the race that You have set before us. Oh Lord, help us to trust the goodness and the wisdom of Your will. That our race is good. Help us to believe in Your power to sustain us and help us to see the prize and be consumed with the prize. And so God, we we need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit to do that in us. And so I pray that You would strengthen us all, even this week, to do these things. And so we look to You. We trust in You. And Father, uh, we pray Uh, that we would walk worthy of Christ and honor you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.